great. We praise you that there was an occasion in the hearts and minds of each one of us when you took us from darkness into light and you blessed us with the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that the Spirit applies the redemptive work of Christ to us and then indwells us and gives us the ability to see and understand the Word. And we pray that that would be the case this morning as we now turn our hearts and minds to James chapter 5 and look at these few verses. We pray this in your name. Amen. So James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Follow along, if you will, as I read. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who moved your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous people. He does not resist you. Cheery words on a Lord's Day morning. As we begin, look at the first two words that James uses. Come now. Now it's interesting Last week's session that Justin did, verses 12 through 17 of chapter 4, begins with what phrase? Come now. Now, these two words are translated differently in other translations. It's the same in the New American Standard and the New King James, but go to now is in the King James, whatever that means. In the NIV, it's now listen, which is obviously pretty clear. In a similar sense, it's look here in the New Living Translation. The best of all that I found was, y'all pay attention. That's in the Douglas County High School 1969 authorized version. <laughs> but get this, no matter how we interpret the phrase, our goal is always the same. That is, to read the verses before us, discern the principles, take them into our heart, and then to allow the Holy Spirit to use those words to make application. It's interesting that James actually touched on this back in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. You may want to turn there, but at least follow along. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law and the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. Now, given the way James uses the come now phrase at the end of chapter 4 and now here again at the beginning of chapter 5, it's obvious that he's linking us back to the collection of principles that James has been communicating to us since the very beginning of the book. In fact, listen, the double use of that phrase is kind of like that linguistic tool 
that the word therefore is when we read any passage of Scripture. It's there to do what? Tell us what all of that is therefore. Plus, when we see words and phrases repeated in the Bible like we do here with the come nows, what we should do is to see this section as if the writer, James here, had underlined the words in a yellow highlighter. Come now and listen. It's come now and pay attention. In other words, what we're reading and we're about to study is very important. So with that in mind and looking at the way these two sections fit together, the last of chapter 4 and this first portion of chapter 5, it's linking us back to everything we've studied since we began this section in James or this book of James and August the 28th, by the way. And it's like he's saying this. There have been some powerful warnings up to this point. So listen, pay attention, and then this. Tell me what you're doing about it. How is all of this doing that trickle down into the hearts and minds of each one of us? Now, interestingly, James seems to be making this statement to fellow believers in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 4. But in today's section, these six verses, he's making that statement either to non-believers or at a minimum, at a minimum to ethnic Jews who had become apostate. They were treacherous in their behavior to others and very far from the Lord. So what we have in this grouping of verses is a call to full devotion and obedience for the believers in chapter 4, come now, and he speaks to them in that section. But now it's a call to saving faith and repentance for the lost or the unfaithful in chapter 5. Make sense, everybody? In simple terms, he's calling both groups, that is, those who are committed and those who are either lost or even marginally committed in chapter 5. One more quick note. Almost two years ago, Cliff preached a sermon in which he read from Colossians 1 and made a point about the important conjunction point between God's effectual call on a person's life and then the responsibility of that man or woman to get with the program, to move ahead spiritually, and to demonstrate that he or she is actually born again. Got that? It's when he spoke that from that sermon. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, and in the two years since then, I've tried to memorize it, and I'm only partial the way through verse 21. But it's an extraordinary passage. In fact, I will tell you, look at it later, highlight it, Memorize it, call me, hold me accountable. But it is an important statement about the conjunction between an effectual call and a transformed life, which is what we're talking about really in the book of James. And the two come nows underscore that point. Everybody got that? Good. Listen to the passage. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable 
and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a member. Now here's what he's saying. By the, sacral de by the sacrificial death of Jesus, we are reconciled to God in heaven, and it can never change. Amen. But secondly, he said, proof that that really happened is that we continue in the faith, that we are stable, steadfast, and we're not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we heard. So there's the indicative, and on top of that is built the imperatives. The imperatives, the to-dos, always stand grounded on some indicative. And of course, that's the fact that we were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So for all of us, the proof's in the pudding. What's going on? And we can say in some sense that what's embedded in that truth from Colossians chapter 1 and how it's now related over to or folded over what we're seeing from James 5 this morning, it's the perseverance of the saints. When we're redeemed, we will persevere to the very end which means this, from a spiritual standpoint, the lives of godly men and women reflect a lifestyle of consistency, loving the Lord our God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. That's just, it's kind of like, what's there? Fragrance of Christ or something other than the fragrance of Christ? That's the test. Everybody agree with that? So here's the question. What in the world do we learn from today's passage that bears on that principle? It almost seems like it's an editorial mistake for it to be there. But hold that thought for a moment if you were thinking that. And let's see what's happening. How does the now listen and pay attention message apply to these rich who lived among the people whom James was writing? These are the people you remember, the 12 tribes in the dispersion and what he's saying is all of you out there will find from time to time see or observe and witness what he's described in these verses. Either non-believers or if, if they knew the name of Yahweh, they were certainly not following in his, following his requirements. They were not being obedient. Let's read the verses again if you don't mind. Come now you rich, weep and howl. One writer says, by the way, that means repent. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. But behold, the wages of the laborers who moved or mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, some over the centuries have made the claim that every person who's been blessed with material possessions must shed that wealth in order to avoid sin and worldliness. We're all familiar with that. 
But if that were, in fact, what the Bible teaches about the subject of wealth and resources, the evil rich mentioned here in verse 1, they would be at the top of the list of the people who needed to give up their fortune and save their souls. If that is a legitimate biblical principle, then who's going to be at the top of the list? These guys absolutely among them. Now let me just say this. This kind of wealth-related rebuke had given rise to the monastic orders that actually began somewhere around the 3rd century with men and women withdrawing from the world and the influences of the world in order to be more Christ-like. And what they would basically say is Jesus didn't have that type of material possession and wealth. And since he did not, then they should not. Part of that, interestingly, may have been attributed to the well-known experience of King Solomon with respect to his own pursuit of wealth and riches. Here's what he said in Ecclesiastes 2, somewhat long passage down about five or six verses, beginning at verse 4. I made great works, Solomon says. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever had them in Jerusalem before. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Shame on him. And just to continue, verse 9. So I became great, surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. But then verse 11, which links us back to this monastic issue a little bit. Then I considered all my hands had done and the toil I'd expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. It was a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Well, that was a pretty frank assessment of what wealth could do to a person. And it's in part Solomon's experience that may have moved Christians in later generations to read that sort of statement. Look at what was going on among them, perhaps like what's happening with these people in the first six verses of chapter 5. They're saying, we got to withdraw from the world. We need to abandon all material pursuits because like Solomon, it's just vanity. Now, as we know, the reality is that notwithstanding how evil these people are in verses 1 through 6, what we know is that Scripture neither condemns wealth nor requires poverty as a pathway to righteousness. Everybody agree with that? Tim, who obviously read my notes, is making the very good point that he's not, con James not here by saying those things is condemning wealth. He's talking about something they did, a practice that was completely godless. We'll talk more about that in just a second. So y'all can sleep during that part when I get to it because you've already gotten it down. The Bible doesn't condemn wealth per se, which is perfectly consistent with the point he just made, nor does it require giving up wealth as some pathway to righteousness. The issue is not if a person has money. 
obviously. The issue is if the attitude of a person's heart toward his or her resources is something that condemns them. In other words, has that person a genuine commitment to the work of the kingdom and to helping other people? God actually said that. Maybe he should run for president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wendell Seymour shamefully asks, was he a lawyer? <laughs> I think Wendell Seymour fits within the category of the first six verses. Do you think? Well, you know, the, the evil rich who always want more and more and more, I actually want to be the guys at the very tip top, I think, in some measure. I don't want anybody to have more than me. That may be another element of that. Well, thank you for that comment. Point well made. Finally, in verse 6, James said that these evil rich had condemned and murdered the righteous. This is linking back to the thing about not paying their wages. These wealthy shameful people murdered righteous men who had done nothing at all to them. And it says, it appears to say at least, that they didn't even resist those evil rich for what they had done. And then one source said, these condemned, these rich men condemned and murdered, let me say it differently, that the terms condemned and murdered is just used figuratively here to describe what would occur to these unpaid laborers who then were destitute and incapable of providing for themselves and families without the wages that would do them. They died of starvation. All right, now open the Bibles, if you will. Look back to chapter 5. We've just looked at the verse, the first six verses. Now, if you will... What did James next say to the evil rich? And the answer is nothing. Instead, as, we, as we'll see in some depth next week, he moves away from his assessment of the wicked man in verses 1 through 6, and he turns back to his exhortation to the believing brothers. And we will see there in verse 7, as James did that, he's shifting off them and he goes back to the brothers. And the first word he told them was to do what? Be patient. Maybe James was thinking about something that he probably heard his brother had said about those who suffered at the hands of people like those described in these verses. It's from Matthew chapter 5. I say that James may have been told that his brother said this because James was not likely there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. But in the Beatitudes, toward the end, verse 11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Excellent advice. Not technically on point with where we are. This, verses 1 through 6 of today's section, is essentially a condemnation of those evil rich. But those who suffer at their hands, the Lord would have said to them, Blessed are you. The armies of heaven are on your side. But here's the question with which we end. What about the evil rich? 
What's going to happen to them? Well, we touched on it earlier. We can be pretty sure that James knew that we know what's going to happen to them, and that's why there's no verse 7 about the evil ridge. If the Lord didn't... Now get this, everybody. If the Lord did not use through the Spirit the come now and listen, going all the the way back to the beginning, if the Lord didn't use that, that phrase, come now and listen, if He didn't use that to chisel out their hearts of stone, what lay ahead for them was the lake of fire. It can be no more clear than what John said in Revelation 20, beginning at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. But then back to the great white throne judgment. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to what they had done. What did these guys in verses 1 through 6 have to offer? Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's terrible. It's also terribly just, isn't it? Now, if that's the judgment, everybody listen. If that's the judgment for the evil rich, what is the call to us as those who are not in that category? That is, what do we do to those that are around us that fit into that category? And by the way, they don't need to be hyper-rich, as Dave said a moment ago. They can just be the person whose attitude about wealth is, who needs God when I have myself? The question as we look through this, our verse 7, so to speak, is this. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. You can look later if you like. The question is this, what's the step for us in light of what we've just seen about those people and James' assessment of them? 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 19. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I may win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jesus. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means... I might save some. So the motivating force for us as we read this is to the extent that we have the seeds or roots of any of that evil, rich wickedness within us, relying on our resources, whatever they may be, at any level that they may be, rather than relying on Christ. So we refine our own thinking, and then secondly, We pray for those around us who may one day face that judgment.
I mentioned to some of you my just younger brother, Ray, who's 70 today, was diagnosed with kidney cancer that's metastasized to his lung and liver. And he will one day stand before God in heaven and I'm praying that by some means the Lord may change him. And I know we have family members and friends who fit that category. So James has given us a warning about the fate of the evil rich, hasn't it, in their desperate condition. And our motivation is to be salt and light. All right, comments, anybody? Here's one of the evil rich who, who for some reason, favors Nick Satan and the University of Alabama. But go ahead, Justin. <laughs> Verse 13, Moses said, The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You've got to pay him for the work that's earned that day. There's a parable about that that Jesus taught, was that some were called early in the morning, later in the end of the day. They called some others then at various points during the day. But what happened at the end of the day? They followed the biblical principle, and they paid them that denarius. Moses expands on this. This is the second giving of the law. It's almost like I'm reminding you people, that's all of the book of Deuteronomy, as they're about to go into the land, he tells them Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 through 15, these things. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he's one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So this offense was so great that James said the cries of those laborers, quoting from that verse, reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And when we talk about, we talk about the Lord of hosts, we're not talking about the gentle lamb. We're talking about the Lord of the armies of heaven who would hear the cries of the workers and come against these evil people. When the rich ignored the pleas of their employees for pay, they cried out to God and he heard and he was not happy. So no employer anywhere should ever cheat the people who do lawful work for them. It's Shameful. Does that apply to Elon Musk and the folks at Twitter? No, no. He's above it. I understand. Next, James describes the evil rich in verse 5 as having lived in luxury and self-indulgence and fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. Now, that's a picture. What happens to animals that have been gradually fattened? You can see them out on the field. They're grazing. They're comfortable watching Sports Center, oblivious to the fact that on the day, any day, they could be slaughtered. James implies that these self-indulgent rich were blind to that fact, even as they enjoyed their daily delicacies, whatever they were, they were fattening themselves, and at any moment they would face that imminent destruction. David. Oh, 
Y'all get the point? She's saying that the words come now at the tail end of chapter 4 then beginning here today in verse 1. That is a mercy. In fact, Jesus was, you might say, arguably merciful toward the Pharisees until finally you get to chapter 23 of Matthew and he announces those seven woes where he said, now it's done. So we have an opportunity to respond with that same type of mercy to those around us who desperately need. All right. Thank you all for being here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for the clarity of your word and the way you point out the condition of the hearts of men and women all around us. Show us how to be skillful surgeons of the souls of others by applying the word, overlaying the word, first to our own hearts and then to the hearts of others. And then may we be salt and light to them, we pray in your name. And we further pray that you would now prepare our hearts for worship. Amen. Everybody, thank you.